great to see you today on this warm day together. We actually got to wear warm clothes for, what, the second time in five years. So it's nice. Um, I don't know if you really caught the gravity and weight of the video you just saw, but when it comes to kind of modern day champions of faith, most people would agree that Mother Teresa is somewhere near the top of that list. Uh, She gets mentioned along with people like Billy Graham and others as someone who lived out her faith with uh, great integrity and steadfastness and perseverance. So when you hear that even Mother Teresa had a long period of doubt and questioning in her walk, it kind of makes you stop and think for a moment. Exactly what role does doubt play in the life of a Christ follower? Is it okay to doubt? And if it is okay to doubt, how much can you doubt and still be considered a true follower of Jesus? We are encouraging you today to send your tweets and your text questions uh, to the number on the screen. We're going to try to address, and obviously we will never be able to address all the questions, but we specifically would like questions that you have about your faith. That may be a doubt, maybe a lingering question, maybe something about the Bible, maybe something about your experience as a Christian. We're going to take a moment at the end today just to kind of try to address a few of these. And we're in this series called Aha Moments with God. And today we're going to talk about the moment that most assuredly will come for every single person in this room, especially if you decide to follow Jesus and pursue the Christian life. Here's how we're going to start. I'd like you, if you can, to pretend for a moment that you're not in church. For some of you, that's not going to be hard, okay? You're already thinking about the games later today. And I want you to think about it this way. That you're a fallible human being and you have big questions in your mind. Questions like, does God really exist? Is there life after death? Are human beings destined for eternity or do we just kind of go out like candles when we die? Is the universe an accident? Or did a personal God create it for us and with a reason? Will we one day be held morally morally accountable for our lives and the choices we make on this earth? Will justice finally prevail? Is the Bible really an authoritative and reliable guide to life, to God? Or has it been discredited now by historical criticism and science? And if there really is a God, why is there so much suffering and pain in the world? And why does it seem like some of my prayers just never get answered? Now let's be honest here. You don't have to raise your hand. But do you ever ever have a question like that? And I don't mean in church or somewhere you're supposed to give the right answer. I'm talking about when you're alone in the middle of the night. In the privacy of your soul. Do you ever really wonder, is it really true? Well, if you have those questions, if you've had even one of them, I have some good news for you. You're not the first person and you will not be the last person to have them. And in some ways, in some mysterious way, your questions and doubts mean that you are really a sincere seeker of the truth. And maybe, maybe even a person of deep faith. You see, the activity of the mind, the mind that God has given us, is to think. So to love God with our mind is to love God through our thinking. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that we 
uh, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. When it says by faith we understand, what he's saying here is basically by faith we think. Faith begins with thinking. Faith begins with reasoning. There is a somewhat famous person, we've already really mentioned him this morning, that epitomizes this truth from Scripture. Unfortunately, when most people talk about him, they don't always talk about him in a positive light. He's one of those characters in the Bible that people give a descriptive name to. You know how people come up with names for characters in the Bible like Joseph the Dreamer or uh, you know, Moses the Deliverer, David the Warrior King, Paul the Apostle, Esther the Courageous Queen. But every now and then people would come up with a title for someone that was not very complimentary. For example, there's a woman in the Bible, and if I said to you, Rahab the... Yeah. Like she needed to be reminded of that every day. Okay? But there's also another guy who has not a very complimentary name. At least we don't think it is. This guy is called Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas. Interestingly enough, he was a chosen disciple of Jesus, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. But every time we mention him in Scripture, it seems like he's not mentioned in a positive light. For example, let me just walk through a couple of places. The first is in John's Gospel when Jesus receives the news that his friend Lazarus is sick. And the disciples don't want Jesus to go back to Judea because most of the people there, or some of the people at least, had tried to stone him to death earlier when Jesus was there. But Jesus insists that they return so Lazarus can be raised from the dead. And the writer records these words. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) Let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, lest you think this is a statement of bold faith and courage, kind of like a warrior calling the troops to battle, let us go with him so we can die together. It is not. You ever watch Winnie the Pooh? There's a character who embodies a spirit of doom and gloom. He has a mindset of pessimism. You know what his name is? Eeyore. I always hear this voice for some reason when I read this scripture. Let us go also that we may die with him. (laughs) Not very positive, is it? A few chapters later in the same book of John, Jesus is talking to the disciples about how he's going to go away and prepare a place for them. You know, that famous John 14 passage. That where I am, you can be also. Don't, you know, let not your heart be troubled. And Thomas speaks up and Jesus tells him, he says that the disciples know the way to the place where he's going. And Thomas speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then Jesus makes one statement that has become one of maybe the most hotly debated and misunderstood things that Jesus ever said. The famous passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Thomas wants to nail it down. See, if you don't tell us exactly where you're going, Jesus, how will we ever know the way? In other words, tell me where this whole thing's end up and then we can find the way. But it's a very interesting thing about Jesus. He seems to be more concerned with the journey than the destination. Jesus knows that there's a lot of ways to get to a final destination, but the safest way, the safest way is to follow someone who knows where they are going. And Thomas is challenged to deal with what he doesn't know 
by following someone he does know. There's one other place Thomas is mentioned, and it's the classic passage. Danielle read a portion of it this morning. After the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appears to the disciples, but Thomas is not present with the other disciples. Listen carefully now. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After, <coughs> excuse me, after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now notice this passage says that Jesus shows them his hands and side. Now here's the next part. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now here's where I think Thomas gets a bum rap. He wants to see the nail prints in Jesus' hand. He wants to touch his pierced side to know for sure it's Jesus. And people sometimes equate that with a lack of faith. But it's interesting. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples earlier when they see his hands and they feel his side. He gladly lets them do it. In fact, he offers them, apparently, the opportunity. Even when he appears before Thomas, he also tells him, Thomas, touch my side. Here's what I want you to know. I think we've been a little hard on Thomas. Maybe if we're honest, we see a little bit of Thomas in ourselves. Maybe he was a doubter, but maybe he was just normal. Maybe questioning and wrestling with matters of life and death and everything in between really is the best way to follow Jesus. Maybe faith really does begin with reasoning and thinking. Now, I want to tell you right up front, this is not what our culture believes. The culture we live in today thinks that Christians, for the most part, or at least religious people, are people who do not like to think. And there are people who say that really religion and Christianity especially doesn't make any sense at all. Over the past couple of years, I've read a number of best-selling books that are kind of like evangelizing for atheism. There's a book by a philosopher named Daniel C. Dennett called Breaking the Spell. His claim in this book is that for too long, religious faith has been protected by the idea that it is holy and sacred. So it hasn't been subjected to the kind of critical thinking that would reveal it to be nonsensical. And that's what he does in his book. There's another writer, graduated from Stanford, a guy named Sam Harris. He's written a couple of books. One of them is called The End of Faith. Now this is what he writes. We'll put this on the screen. We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there are no rational justification. When the beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. While religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are. I don't think he's going to come to Oasis anytime soon. Okay. Another book, some of you may have heard of this book, written by the late Christopher Hitchens, called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. 
Another guy named Richard Dawkins at Oxford called, wrote a book called The God Delusion, bestseller. And at the beginning of the book, he says at the beginning, if this book works like I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. But here's the deal. It's not just people writing books who struggle. It's not just people promoting a philosophical point of view. At some point or other, people who want to believe will struggle, friends. Somebody believes for an alcoholic father for 20 years, and he never changes. Somebody tells me they prayed for a decade for a sister with mental health illness, and she eventually committed suicide. Someone says, the God I used to believe in was very easy to hear, very easy to follow, but now I'm in this dark space, and he feels like a stranger. I still pray about getting nervous because he doesn't seem to answer. And because now I have so little faith, not even the size of a grain of a mustard seed. So if I can be brutally honest with you, I doubt. Let's just be real honest here. Over the last year of my life, I have doubted more than I've ever doubted in my life. I have questions. I have hard questions. And I've struggled. So this morning, I want to walk us through, again, the idea of faith and doubt, of loving God with our minds as well as our emotions. What does it mean to struggle? And where does commitment fit in? And my hope is that this message will help every one of us, every one of us, have a more thoughtful And deep faith because, listen, we live at the mercy of our ideals about the way things are. Let me say that again. Everyone in this room, including me, we live at the mercy of our ideals about the way things are. And there is no way, friends, it is impossible to have a strong attachment to God with our minds if there are deep questions in our mind that we have never been honest enough to really look at. So here's some observations. Take them for what you will. The first thing I want you to know is that doubt is an inescapable part of the human condition. You cannot live without doubt. Part of what it means to be a finite creature with a limited IQ is that you cannot escape doubt. Now I want to tell you, this hits us in a lot of different areas. For example, when I got married, there was no doubt-free guarantee that it was the right decision. I knew I wanted to do it. I thought it was a great decision. I knew I was marrying up. Mainly I knew because Robin told me I was marrying up. (laughs) But then again, Robin tells me that all men marry up. (laughs) But there was no guarantee. When we ventured out to launch Oasis many years ago, I thought it was the right decision. I believe that God was showing us and leading us to do it. But there was no guarantee. See, we live in the condition of doubt. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people doubt. Some people doubt because, honestly, they're dealing with depression. Some people doubt because maybe they're going through a time of sinning in a certain way and they don't want to believe certain things. But mostly, mostly, doubt is an inescapable feature of just being finite. If you want a doubt-free existence, friend, you were born on the wrong planet. That's why in this little book toward the end of the Bible, the book of Jude, there's a statement and it just says, be merciful to those who doubt. Thank God it says that. See, I've chosen to spend my life the way I spend it because I think 
That's the best way that I can. But I'm finite and I have questions and I struggle. And if you wait, if you wait until all doubt is removed before you make a commitment in life, you will never make a commitment. You will never get married. You will never take a job. You certainly will never have children. You will never make a single friend. You will never follow God. Doubt is part of the human condition. It also means this, that every human being lives by faith. I was talking to someone not long ago, and they said to me, I wish I could have faith, but I just don't seem to be a faith person. It's just too hard. And behind this statement, behind it, is this notion that some people have faith and some don't. That certain people live by what can be proven, what is logical and rational, and that other people are what is called faith people. And the point I want to make, and I hope you will hear this clearly, is the idea that some people live by faith and some don't is not true. Every human being lives by faith. For example, I was out of town this past week at a place where the temperature was 19 degrees one morning. Places where God will not go anymore. (laughs) But when I came back home to Lakeland... It was a little cool, but I walked outside on Thursday afternoon. I was going to work on this message. And it was a fabulous day. Blue sky, a little breeze, 71 degrees. I saw a group of kids playing on a playground at a school. And I just had this thought just kind of hit me. And it was this. You know, it really is great to be alive. How lucky I am to be like here and like breathing and alive. Now, here's the deal. If you try to prove that statement that it's good to be alive, and if you wait to believe it until a physicist or a biologist or a mathematician proves it, you know what? You better buy the dirt farm right now because it cannot be proved. It's what is called a basic conviction, like the belief that children deserve lavish love and that all humans are created equal. These are things that cannot be proven scientifically or mathematically or logically, but they are, I believe, good reasons to hold them to be true. They're not like just emotional states, like I prefer vanilla ice cream. Part of why I believe in the Christian faith is that the writers of Scripture tell us what the reason is, why we ought to believe it is good to be alive. That when creation occurred, God was at work. And God saw that it was so, and God said it was good. God said, I'm on a roll, baby. I woke up with my A game today. Now, I understand creation has been marred by sin. I understand the scriptures teach that. But at those moments when we're aware that life is good... That conviction, friends, is not just a survival instinct. It is not just genetic programming. It is not just an emotional statement. It is tied to the way things are. Now, that's one possibility. Let me tell you another possibility. Jennifer Hedge writes this in a fascinating book called A History of Doubt. She offers an assessment scale to judge where you are when it comes to the God question. Here's your options. At one end of the scale, she offers this account to explain how things might be. At one end, the universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff, jostling around with no rhyme or reason, and all life on earth is but a tiny, 
utterly inconsequential speck of nothing in a corner of space existing in the blink of an eye, never to be judged, noticed, or remembered. That's, that's pretty depressing. Imagine a conversation here. One of them says, the universe is nothing but a pile of stuff on this end. And somebody on this end says, oh, no, no, no. I think it was created by a personal God for a reason. Listen, my point is, this is not a conversation between a person of faith and a person without faith. Neither position can be proved, but rest on a series of beliefs. And both are based on what? Faith. See, we don't like living by faith. Every once in a while, someone will try to figure out a way to live without faith. They only want to live on what basis of things they know. Centuries ago, there was a philosopher, some of you remember this from high school or college, Rene Descartes. He asked the question, what's the one thing I can know for sure without any doubt? What he finally came down to was, at least I know I exist because I'm the one who's doubting. I'm the one who's asking the question. And remember, he summarized his statements in that famous statement, or his thoughts in that famous statement. Remember? Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And there's a whole school of philosophy (laughs) built on the idea that the truth cannot be known. Even Descartes' position became radically undermined. Today, people call this skepticism. We can't know truth. We can't even know if we exist. This is a crazy article by a guy named Steve Pinker. He's a neurologist. And in Time Magazine, he did this article about human consciousness. Now, I know this is kind of wild stuff. But the idea that we have minds, not just brains, but we also have minds. And his position was, there is no such thing as you. All there are, listen, is atoms. That's all there is, is stuff. What we call you is nothing more than a series of brain states. It's just neurons firing. He writes, there is no executive you at the core of your life. The notion of a you is just an illusion. Now here's the problem with this position because it's impossible to live this out consistently. Steve Pinker writes and he sells books arguing that there is no such thing as Steve Pinker. But somebody keeps cashing his checks. Remember the story about, I think I told you this, there's a story about a class in skepticism. On the final exam, they set one chair right in the middle of the room. The only question on the final exam is, prove that this chair exists. Everybody in the class writes these long essays. One little dude has a single response. He writes in his essay, what chair? He gets the A in the class. See, skeptics believe that it's impossible to know whether or not a chair exists. But here's the deal. Even skeptics sit down. You got to think about that one all through lunch. Okay. In the scriptures, the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I want to tell you something. That may trouble you. But just so you know, if you've ever wondered, it's not only impossible to please God. It's impossible to please anybody without faith. Try making a friend without faith. Try making a parent, pleasing a parent without faith. Try getting married without faith. Try raising a kid without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, but I got news for you. It's impossible to please anybody. It's impossible to live. 
Paul made this great statement. He said, the righteous will live by faith, but I got news for you. The unrighteous will live by faith too. There's no such thing as a no-faith person. We all struggle with it. I'll tell you how much we struggle with it. I need a volunteer, somebody who's... Charlie, come here. Charlie, I have $20 in my left hand. Do you believe that? No. Do you have faith? Okay. Do you have faith? Yeah, yeah. You do? How much faith? Scale of 1 to 10, how much faith? 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. I'm about to blow your faith away. I'm about to pummel, demolish your faith. I'm about to destroy your faith, Charlie. You know how I'm going to do it? There's a $20 bill. Did you think I was going to give you that $20? No. Oh, okay. Actually, I am. You can take mom and dad. <clears throat> now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Does Charlie need faith anymore? No. Faith is only required when you have doubts. When knowledge comes, listen, as soon as he sees a $20 bill, he doesn't need faith anymore. I say this partly because so many people say, I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure. But as long as there are doubts, friends, as long as there's still uncertainty, that's the only time that faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, you don't need faith. This is exactly the, Paul, the point that Paul makes when he writes in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, if Donald Trump was saying this. But I've been waiting all week for that, just so you know. He says, now we see, but a poor reflection. Now we have confusion, he says, under, misunderstanding. He said, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, in other words, with questions and doubts, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, right now, we live in an age when we need faith. And that brings me to this thought. Real faith stimulates profound thinking and reasoning. Now, this is really important what we're going to talk about here. See, what we've done is we've set up this false dichotomy between faith and reason so that people say stuff like, well, you have faith and I have reason. You have faith and I have rationale. But that's not the way it works, friends. C.S. Lewis had a great example of this. He says, here's how faith operates. He says, imagine that you have to go to the doctor and the doctor says, listen, we found this kind of innocuous growth inside of you. We've got to take it out. But it's a really simple procedure. It's a necessary procedure, but it's really simple. We do it right here in the office, local anesthesia. It doesn't take any skill. He said, my dog could do this. So you Google it, which is the best way to find a doctor, of course. We know that, right? And we look up the doctor, and we've talked to people. We've seen him. They're still alive. And they tell you it's easy. It's great. It'll be, it'll be in and out. And so you find he's the leading doctor in the field, so you're convinced. The evidence convinces you this is the guy to take out this growth. Anybody here ever been to a doctor or to a surgery center? Any of you know what happens when you actually show up that day in the office? And you sit down and you see all those instruments and you smell that smell? And you see all the white coats. 
and they tell you to lie down and there's straps there and you're wondering, what are the straps for? <laughs> now, you're starting to have doubts, right? But where are the doubts coming from? Listen, they're not coming from new evidence. They're coming, listen, they're not coming from new reasons. You're losing your faith, but why are you losing your faith? Is it because you started to reason? Is it because you started to think? Is faith the opposite of reason and thinking? No. You're losing your faith because you stopped reasoning. You stopped thinking. You stopped looking at the evidence and you listened to your emotions and your fears. So people say, how do I get my faith back? You think. You reason. You remember, why am I doing this? The way to renew your faith is to renew your thinking. Let me give an example from Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 6, he talks to a lot of people and they're all worried, they're all anxious. And he says, you people who are worried, he says, don't have any anxiety. Consider the lilies of the field. God takes care of them. He says, you people who are worried, he said, don't have anxiety. Consider the birds of the air. If they're, listen, if God takes care of the birds of the air and the grass of the field and you are more valuable than they are, won't he take care of you? Now, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching people how to have faith. What does he say? He says, look at the lilies, look at the birds, consider them, think about them. He never says, if you want to have faith, stop thinking and just believe. Does that that make sense? Okay. That is not what the Bible calls faith, friends. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his great sermon on this passage that Jesus insists that the whole problem with people of little faith is that they do not think. They allow circumstances to bludgeon them. They allow feelings to collar them. The Bible is full of reasoning. We must never think of faith as something purely mystical, friends. Faith progresses through thinking. Some of you deal with worry and anxiety a lot in your life, but instead of letting reason control your thoughts, other things control them. And this is why you go round and round and round in this circle of anxiety. Worry is the absence of thinking. Unbelief is the absence of thinking. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says, if you have a premise, there is no God, that leads you to a conclusion that you know is wrong. For example, I know there's evil. I know there's right and wrong. I know genocide is wrong. I know there is such a thing as human dignity. If you have a premise that leads you to a wrong conclusion, then why not change your premise? Why not reevaluate Why not look at the truth, examine them, scrutinize them, think about them? See, this is why we can't be afraid of hard questions in this community that we call Oasis. That's why we have to leave space for people to be honest about their doubts. And that leads to another thing. Doubt, believe it or not, can lead you to a stronger faith. There is a purpose behind doubt, and that purpose is to lead you to be stronger in your faith. Here's what happens with people who have doubt, and I've seen it hundreds of times. People become overwhelmed by feelings of guilt. They feel like they might not be a very good Christian because they're doubting. And what happens is the way we deal with them is we repress them, we stuff them down. I had someone tell me, point out, they said, listen, I am never going to read a book like you read about Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or any of those guys about atheism because if I'm afraid I read it, if I read it, it's going to undermine my faith. Now listen, I'm not saying that you should or should not read that kind of book. That's not what I'm saying. You may not have any need to do that. 
But if you don't read it and you avoid it because you're afraid it will destroy your faith, please, please take this as gently as I can say it. What you're really saying is, deep down inside, I don't believe that Jesus was really right. And it's impossible to trust Jesus if way down deep you don't think he's right. This is one of the great things about the church. If we could just be a place where we can all talk about what we really think about things. Instead of having to come together and affirm things and act like we pretend, we just kind of think you're supposed to believe that. Why can't we just focus on a few things and then get to the point of examining what we really think? Jesus talks so much about truth. Know the truth, it'll set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into truth. According to Jesus, you don't have to choose between truth and Jesus. Jesus said, you search for truth, guess who you find? Me. William, with this. I don't know where you're at today, but I want to say this. When certainty is impossible, faithfulness is still on the table. It's still an option. I want to go back to Thomas for a second. Do you think Thomas was the only doubter in Scripture? Friends, the Bible really is full of doubters. Abraham, Sarah, Elijah, John the Baptist. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. All the disciples ran away when it was time to stand up for Jesus. Dozens and dozens of doubters, and God doesn't give up on any of them. What God does not ask you to do is manufacture certainty. What he asks you to do is to be faithful to what you know. Let me say this again. God asks his people to be faithful to what they know. And here's what's happening in our day, and it's happened for now the better part of a couple of centuries. In our day, we try to get people to trust Jesus for their eternity, to get them into heaven, without ever learning to trust him for their daily lives. And as a matter of psychological reality, friends, it just does not work. It produces people who say they trust Jesus, who might even think they trust Jesus, but what they will do and what they will show is that they do not share his ideas about the way things are and the way life really works. And this is why the disciples are such a great example. They looked at Jesus and they said, man, I like his life. (laughs) I wish I could live like that. Wish I had his joy, wish I had his security, wish I had his power, wish I had his peace, his boldness. So here's the deal. When they tried doing things that Jesus instructed, they found out his teachings actually worked. When they were angry with someone, listen, and they tried forgiveness, they found out it really was the best way. When they had things and they became generous with their stuff, they learned that generosity was way better than hoarding. They found that serving somebody was way better than powering up on them. Elton Trueblood wrote these words. I think they are just magnificent words. He says, The deepest conviction of the Christian is that Christ was not wrong. And here's what the growth of the disciples looked like. First, they had faith in Jesus. Then they had the faith of Jesus. Then their lives began to look like Jesus' life looked. 
And they did it, listen, amid some of the greatest doubts and endless questions and constant uncertainty that you could imagine. Maybe what matters most to God is not that I have the comfort of security. You know, that's what we want. We want to know for sure, for sure, for sure. But what matters most to our God is not that we have the comfort of security. Maybe it's just to be faithful to what we already know. And maybe if we'll do that, maybe if we'll do that, God will use us. I want to tell you why I think that's true. Toward the end of the book of Matthew's gospel, we get a glimpse of this. I think Robbie mentioned this early. Men who had followed Jesus for three years. These are guys, listen, who had learned from him, who had been taught by him, who had walked with him, who had seen him die and be crucified and be resurrected. And now Jesus stands before them and he gives them what we call the Great Commission. And it says, Then the disciples went to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? Matthew's ending the book, and he says, and some doubted. Listen, when people tell me that the Bible isn't real, I'm like, really? I mean, why would this guy include this? He should have just left this part out. But it's like a guy by the name of Dale Bruner says. He says, the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their life between worship and doubt, trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. And Jesus looks at these worshiping, doubting guys and he says, you guys go. You doubters, go. Risk your lives. Change your world. And you will find that as you go, your doubts are healed. I want to say this. For some of you, your aha moment with God will come when you realize that it's okay to doubt. You can still be a disciple and doubt. You can still be a follower and question. You will doubt and worship. You will doubt and serve. You will doubt and help other people. And apparently, according to Jesus, that's okay. Because listen to this last passage. The disciples returned from the mountain. It says, The apostles returned to Jerusalem from that same hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present, now listen to this, were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas. Old Downton Thomas is still hanging in there. Probably got some doubts. But he decided to be faithful, even when certainty was impossible. And the question for the day is, will you do the same? I'd like you to reflect on that before we address some of the questions.